It's very difficult because it's different for every person. Something that motivated me incredibly when I got my first license, and this is just an example to show you how silly it is as far as where you can pull motivation from. The Taylor Swift Sparks Fly concert <laughs> drove me through the roof. I loved it. It was the first, it was actually the first concert I'd ever been to. I loved that so much. And that kept me like up high for like two years. It was amazing. Welcome to the On Fire Podcast, episode 16, with your hosts, Matt and Kellen. On Fire is a weekly podcast where we discuss financial independence, life hacking, frugality, minimalism, and living within your means. Reviews. Okay, how else can I explain it to you guys at this point? Reviews are reviews are the smashing of the like button of YouTube of podcasting. So I need you guys to go smash that review button. Leave us five stars on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play, as well as leave us a written review. It can be anything. It can be, what's your fire date? That can be your written review. Just leave us a written review. Today's guest is Kevin, a.k.a. Meet Kevin. Kevin is a real estate agent, investor, and YouTube creator, sharing valuable knowledge in his videos and providing personalized service for his clients in a way that you don't see very often in this field. I love what Kevin's doing with YouTube, and it's fantastic to actually get to meet up in person and record this episode at OREC 2018. I can't believe Kevin has the same energy in person as he does on screen. Let's dive into the interview with Kevin. All right. So welcome to the podcast, Kevin. Yeah. Welcome, Kevin. Thank you. I think I might be allergic to something in this smoothie. It good. <laughs> I'm starting to feel that throat itchiness. Oh, good. I'll just drink more to wash it down. I hear you brush your tongue and drink a bunch of water and you'll be fine. Or you could stop drinking it. <laughs> yeah, it's an option. <laughs> Thanks. So yeah, so this is the On Fire podcast. So essentially it's a podcast myself and Kellen host, and we're just going to dive into kind of your financial backstory. So Wow. How, On you, the spot. Let's yeah. do it. Yeah. So how'd you get into real estate, the idea of saving money, all that good stuff, Kevin? Great. Probably the, the most fun thing is when you first start investing in something like a stock and you see the price go up, it becomes addicting. You invest in a stock and the price goes down. It's like, I'm done. I'm done investing. I'm never investing in. But I invested in the Apple stock before it was Apple stock. And it was only... 20 bucks or whatever. And to see that, I kept throwing 20 bucks at it. And all of a sudden it's $400 is, you know, the stock had grown to. That really made me addicted to this idea of I'm taking my Jamba Juice tip money and buying another stock today because that's where I was working for eight bucks an hour. So really went from working for minimum wage uh, as, as many of us have started with and going from saving as much as possible, being frugal, which you guys talk about a lot to connecting with people who talked about real estate. I don't like to consider it an unfair advantage because I feel like now with YouTube, people have access to this information. But I I will say my father-in-law was a real estate broker for 30 years. And what he did is he would sit, now my wife Lauren and I down and say, look, we started in the 80s. We started with nothing. I started homeless, was his story. And his wife had almost no money. And they got a hard money loan for $8,000 for a deposit on an $80,000 duplex in the 80s and turned that into what is now, say, 20 units, 30 units. Well, not units. These are are buildings. It's a hell of a snowball. It's quite a snowball. And in California, at least, a lot of people count units by doors. In California, we we count them by buildings, Mm. at least in, in our area. So. To see what they've been able to build and then retire and and sort of just live off the cash flow was very addicting as somebody who was also at the same time seeing Apple stock do its Apple thing from the time of the iPad release and and post iPhone 1. 
No, that's you're right. There's a there's a lot to be said for having somebody in your actual life doing this stuff because it demystifies it, it humanizes it. You're not just like I've seen some dude on the internet who's done it. You're like, oh, this guy over here's done it. Now, like, I can do it too. So, have you you've always been kind of a relatively frugal guy, like saving up your income at the, in, in the early stages at least? No, no? not in the <laughs> early stages. Surprisingly, when I sold my World of Warcraft account for two thousand dollars, I bought a flat screen TV, which. <laughs> Within two months, it ended up in my dad's room, and I didn't have a TV anymore, and I didn't have $2,000 either. <laughs> I wish, looking back, that at 15, somebody told me, invest that money then. <laughs> I didn't realize that later until I was 16, 17. Right. So no, it's it's something that you can learn, which is actually in my opinion, inspiring. You're not born frugal. You just learn ideas. Wow, okay, if I just put a little bit away here and there, buy stocks and start saving to invest in real estate or whatever, it all starts with very little. Yeah. And and it compounds over time. That's the biggest thing that I think is missing. I talk to so many people. Everybody's learning, but nobody wants to start. Start. Yes. <laughs> Do it. That's the hardest part. You need to take action. Yeah, yeah, even start, and it's okay to start small. I think I, I get a lot of first-time homebuyers, even people that I work with in my area. They say, well, I don't want to start yet because I want to be able to live in this for seven years. And then what if I have a girlfriend? What if this happens? What if I lose my job? What about this? Yeah, what about analysis this? Like, paralysis. They don't, they don't do, do anything. anything. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Start. Yeah. And you've talked, I think, in some of your videos about like, you know, a deal doesn't have to be amazing. And then when you start really analyzing it, you have the mortgage paid on, you have the appreciation. It doesn't need to be this massive cash flowing property. You just start. You just get into it. And then you start learning, right? You're like, now I know what I'm doing. And you get confidence and you build rapport and other people now see what you're doing. And then you can really start ramping it up rather than just waiting. I think for myself, the first property, it took me like I don't know, at least six months, which felt like a really long time before I bought my first place of just analyzing. And Matt yeah. was always saying I look like a deer in the headlights because I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. But then once you really get started, you're like, oh, okay. It, you it break the ice. night and day. The moment Kellen had bought his first property, it was just like a switch was flipped, right? And then you went from buying like it took six months to buy that one property. And then in like the next year and a half or two years, you bought like six more. Yeah. So yeah, it's really one of those things. Once you, once you start taking action, you start to really see like, Hey, anyone can do this. If they put in the effort, they put in the work, you do some research. It, it's going to work out. So and the I'm, learning is actually easier than too, because it's yeah. so overwhelming to try to learn everything up front and then take action. And this sounds reversed, but if you just buy that $150,000 condo, Ah, now I know what escrow is, title insurance, mortgage insurance, principal pay down, tax benefits. I've talked to my CPA. You learn all that. Yeah. And now you add knowledge from other people on top of that. You can actually place that into your mind in the right areas because yeah. you've already ha- built an understanding for this. And if you have a network where you can bounce these deals off them and they're like, that sounds like a decent deal, then at least you know you're not in like left field by buying like the property that's in the, like a horrible price or something like that. 100%. Bounce it off people and then get into it, right? Just Absolutely. Even something as simple as, for instance, somebody DM'd me today said, hey, there's this uh, uh, property I'm thinking about buying. Anything I should look out for? I looked at it. It was a fixer-upper. Everything about it seemed like it would be a good deal. It was a duplex for 175k and I don't know values in mass where he was buying but the one thing I looked at is I go okay this is a 1900 property so what about cripple walls how's the foundation because that's something that could tank somebody but now I look at being a first time home buyer who's never done anything before there are ways to minimize those risks in maybe a first property isn't a 1900s property maybe it's a fixer upper from the 70s and then the ultimate fail safe and and I hate saying this because it 
It can be misconstrued very easily. But the ultimate failsafe is if you're buying a house as a home buyer for 3% down, the bank's taking the risk. You're not taking the risk. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Mm-hmm. It's funny. Like people get all these creative financing strategies and they finally get a deal done and it's like, they feel like they've won and everything. But like at the end of the day, the bank's making all the money on this. Like they're happy to give you these loans. They're making it. They're, yeah, absolutely. The interest and so on. But in terms of the risk factor, if the deal didn't work yes. out, say you, you get in with 3% down and you didn't realize that foundation needed a $100,000 foundation repair. See you later. You like I guess I'm following BK. I'll be back in seven years. Yeah. yeah. I've honestly been thinking about that a lot lately. Like if you really think about how a lot of like the Western democracies are set up, the, the way the risk spread is, it's fascinating because the fact that we have limited liability, like you're never literally going to become a debt slave. Like you're not going to be sold into slavery because of debt. You can hit a point and you can walk away and restart, right? And you can see it with a lot of successful investors, whether it be real estate or otherwise, like they had a lot of failures before we knew them for their success. And often the great part was they could just kind of walk away from the failures where I think a lot of us are raised just to be so fear oriented at the start. It does us a disservice. And, and especially in this world where, you know, people want to reach financial independence, they're typically coming from a very frugal mindset. And it's really important to make the distinction between frugal and scarcity. And like, it's important to not blow your money on random crap, but it's also important not to be like, oh, I need to, I need to hoard everything. I need to make sure that I'm like having that scarcity mentality versus like the abundance mentality. Don't buy a TV with your wow money. Yeah. (laughs) That's great too. Right? Like just don't, don't blow your money. (laughs) So were were you always kind of entrepreneurial? Like, the idea of selling WoW, like your WoW account, I'm kind of curious about that. That's a, that's a really interesting question I haven't even thought about before. I think I really just needed motivation to actually quit playing that game because they take up a lot of time. Uh, but I, yeah, I do think there's always been this uh, background idea that I wanted to be involved in business. I was a law enforcement explorer for three years. There was a, a long period of time where my career path was put in the 25 years and take retirement uh, and all 54 on a pension and a 90% pension, which is a great career path. Yeah. A great, it's, it's just, it's mapped out. Everything about it just seemed perfect. But uh, yeah, something went haywire there and now here I am doing this. So how did the story play out for you? So your first property, like what, what was the story on that guy? Three and a half percent down and a renovation loan and a hard money loan on top of that. Wow. So we financed, we bought the property for $305,000. We financed $340,000 plus a hard money of twenty five. So that way we had about sixty to play with to fix it up. Wow. So we completely overfinanced, but it was okay because the comps in that neighborhood were four. The deal was there. So the deal was there. It's I had a forty thousand dollar margin of safety no matter what. Yeah. Because I could always resell it fixed up for four and and walk away if I couldn't afford the payment or I lost my job or whatever. But I wasn't even making money. When we were in escrow on that deal, we went into escrow on that deal in Feb of 2012. So you can see it's not that long ago. So went into escrow on that deal, Feb of 2012. We didn't close until August of 2012. Six-month escrow wow. was horrible, but uh, made it through that. Different <laughs> things we took away from learning that. But in March of 2012, I bought a Prius, and they were asking me in the office, well, we have to put in here how much money you make. Oh, I don't make any money right now. So we bought that house with no money. Wow. Cosign. Father, cosign. Right. Took 1% title. And we used his income to qualify. For that. That's a great, actually, we never talk about this strategy and that's a great way to do things. 
So actually, and as a side note, for, with three and a half percent or three three and a half percent, what is the what is the fee that you get for the insurance on? Like, like is there like in Canada we have CMHC insured mortgages? It's like four percent. So when you buy the property, you only end up with about one percent equity in the property. I've done it myself. I still think it's worth doing in the right scenarios. But like, what, what is that in the? Well, there are upfront fees that are usually around one point one percent, but then you generally have recurring monthly mortgage insurance fees as well. Okay. And what I'll do is I'll say if a conventional loan is going for about four and a half percent. These loans are probably going to be closer to say five or five and a quarter oh. because of that additional mortgage insurance, which sounds like a lot. But the bottom line is, what's that end up making your mortgage payment like another like fifty bucks or something? Or like even yeah. if it's an extra two hundred bucks, yeah. We just bought into a forty thousand bucks of equity with zero income, yeah. And zero of our own money. It actually makes it even that much stronger of an argument for doing these like 5% down in Canada. We can't go as low as three. But because in Canada, we don't have the upfront fee. It's all rolled into the mortgage. And your rates are better. You get better rates. They're, the banks feel more safe because they're understanding. Well, in this case, they're not taking much of a risk because they get that 4% insurance on the on the yeah, deal. they're covered. So I'm curious, you got started in stocks. So are you still, like, do you still have a stock portfolio or are you all real estate now? What does that look like? uh, All I really do with stocks is I have in the United States what's called a SEP IRA, just self-employment IRA, which allows me to self-direct stock funds and just buy something. But there's a limitation. So I could buy about $7,000 worth of stocks and then take a tax write-off for that full $7,000. So I, I take advantage of that. Now that I went from in a matter of 12 months from zero employees to 15 employees with other companies that we're working on, I can't use that anymore. So in reality, other than what's sitting there, which isn't much, I'm out of stocks. Yeah. And, I, and I'm embarrassed to say that I'm like, not embarrassed, but like, yeah, 90, I did the math. I don't know. It's like in the nineties <laughs> for real estate, 90% in real estate. Like we have tax-free savings accounts in Canada are like, I have money locked away in an RSP that I can't really access. But yeah, I mean, when you start seeing the power of leverage in real estate, it's really hard to argue, especially once you know what you're doing, it's really hard to argue with using that money elsewhere. And you have control over your asset with real estate. You don't really have that with with stocks. The other thing about stocks is the financing, the leverage aspect is absolutely horrible on stocks. Yeah. Because if you get a flash crash and you have financing out, so let's let's do this example. Let's say you have $100,000 of stocks and you wanted to borrow an extra 50K. You borrow an extra $50,000. Now you're playing with 50,000 bucks of the bank's money. You've got a $150,000 portfolio that you get to trade, day mm-hmm. trade or long-term trade, whatever it is you want to do. If all of a sudden there's a flash crash and the value of that portfolio goes to 75K and then it would ordinarily say bounce back up to 100 or whatever, they'll sell you at 75 because they want to cover their loan of $50,000. Mm-hmm. So those margin loans are super dangerous because as soon as that value goes down, they're selling you at the bottom. Which everybody knows, don't sell at the bottom, right <laughs> through the bottom. But you can if you got debt on it. You're signing your rights away to your money. It's absolutely a horrible form I'm, of debt. I'm really proud to know that I've never heard of that. So I think it's probably a good thing. It doesn't sound like a great place Mar- to put Margin loans. And this what is are the rates on those? Six, seven percent. They're a little bit more. 6%. They're secured against stocks, not real estate. So right. The rates are a little bit higher, but wow. even if you're paying 7% for money, that's relatively cheap given that hard money for not qualifying, True. it can be around 9 to 10%, which we'll take advantage too. And it's secured against that stock. Exactly. Secured against that stock gives them the option to sell that instantly, but that's the painful wow. thing, which is different from in real estate. I can 100% finance a house paying 9% interest only, let's say, which sounds like a lot. But if this is a great deal, I buy it for say 482,000 bucks, I finance 
all of it and the renovation at 9% interest only, but I know I'm making 50K on the deal and I'm going to sell it after a year. That's okay. And the way I look at it is even if the market value fell, my safety net is I know I can rent the property out and cover that interest only payment. And even if the market value tanked 50%, they can't sell the property. They can't call the loan on me. Yeah, you're still through. making a payment. You just, you just ride, ride through, through it. Yeah. You can't ride in stocks. That's why Warren Buffett says don't leverage stocks, but right. he'll tell you to take out a 30 year mortgage. Right. Yeah, that's yeah, really interesting. That's a great point. So, did you become a realtor first and then an investor, or an investor and then a realtor? Definitely a real estate agent first, but that was only because my, uh, this was in high school, my wife was like, I'm going to get my real estate license because her father in law is like, get your real estate license, or her father, my father in law. I was doing half days as a senior in a high school I transferred to out in California. So my senior year I did in California. All my other years were Florida. So I was like a fish out of water. Uh, I didn't know anybody. I didn't even go to my own graduation. So it it was just sad, but I didn't know anybody. Who cares? And they were doing it outside on a hot summer day anyway. (laughs) I'm not doing that. Uh, So the... I was bored. Uh, I saw my wife now going for a real estate test. I go, oh, whatever. I'll do that too. And it's a joke. Out in in California, it's what, 300 bucks to go through your licensing fees and maybe another 300 bucks to actually get your license and you're done. You're licensed. I hear it's a lot more expensive here. Yeah. And they're a little more of a process. And they're making, they keep making it harder and harder just to try and I think distinguish themselves. But so I'm curious, a lot of real estate investors come to a point where they start debating, should I become a realtor? What are your thoughts on that, Kevin? I think the only people who should become real estate agents or realtors are the people who actually want to provide a service to clients and other people. Because providing a service to other people is very difficult compared to providing a service to yourself. My best client is myself because I don't complain to myself. Mm -hmm. I don't need the service that a client needs. I love doing my own deals because they're the easiest ones ever. But to represent other clients as a realtor is a completely different perspective. So when folks say, oh, well, I'll just get my license now to flip the argument. I'll just get my license and I'll only represent myself. They're actually in that case doing a disservice to themselves because they should be paying for the consulting of somebody who does this every day, Mm -hmm. who sees what the market is. And even just one thing somebody as an investor overlooks themselves because they're not in the market every day seeing trends and seeing what's happening, what's happening or new code changes could kill deals for them as an investor. Pay a realtor. Don't be afraid to pay a fee for advice. There's so much in our culture that says we need to negotiate everything. We need to do everything cheaper. So let me get my real estate license so I can cut out the realtor. If you're not actually doing real estate every day as a realtor, don't get your license. Yeah, no, I agree. It's a look at the big picture, right? And I think if you're going to like, say you're on the selling side of things, if you're going to try and sell it privately, but you're not exposing it to the full MLS, you're not going to get the highest value for your, uh, you're not going to get the best uh, sale price. So I know you should be more than, yeah, oh boy, yeah. <laughs> you're more than like you, if you're not <laughs> drop the mic, if you're not exposing your, your asset to the full MLS, like yeah, the odds of you getting the, the, the best price are, are I think lower, right? It comes down to information asymmetry, yes. right? And yeah, if you're selling it privately, you're probably doing yourself disservice. You're not getting that the maximum information, right? Yeah. Um, but so any tips on how to find a good realtor? Because not all realtors are created equal. I think it should be a requirement that at least a realtor who's been in the business for a while, they should own what they're selling. Because these are going to be people who 
have been through the process themselves and really understand, well, I bought in this neighborhood and I, you know what, that foundation issue continues to be a nuisance for me. Yeah. Whatever. To me, somebody who's actually investing in the local market where you want to buy. So you're a buyer, you're not a realtor. You want to invest though, find an agent that does investments, that does flips, all of that. Now, does that mean they're going to have other clients that might get a deal first or this? There's plenty to go around. Yeah. I wouldn't be worried about that. But I want a professional's opinion in uh, the market. I couldn't investment. agree more. I, I made the mistake with my first realtor. She was nice and all that. She worked hard for me, but she didn't know investment properties. And if you're looking to buy investment properties, work with someone who at least understands them. Ideally, someone who actually owns them themselves because they're going to be in the, in the thick of things. It's always funny to me that like brand new investors are always like, oh, I don't want to use a realtor that invest because they're going to steal all the best deals. And then experienced investors are always like, I need a realtor that invests because they, they get it. They understand it. And the best part is you can often speed up you know, your ability to acquire properties if you've got a good realtor because They'll understand the profile building that you want. They'll understand like they'll be able to actually go through and walk through that property and tell you whether it's something that's going to fit your profile. Alleviate your concerns is a yeah. huge thing. If you're a first time investor, you you really need that advisor to tell you, no, 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 this is okay. We can solve this this way. Yeah. Because sometimes, for example, this is very common in California. People will look at a property and say, I want to make this rent ready. Home inspector says, well, these are all ungrounded power sockets. You're going to have to rewire the whole house and it's a lath and plaster house. So you're going to have to rip open all the walls. And this is a $20,000 expenditure to fix everything in the stuff and patch it all back together. Whereas there's a hidden code code in the National Electric Code that says, wait, if we GFCI protect all of these yeah. outlets, we can actually replace them with a three-prong outlet, label them in a certain way, no equipment ground, GFCI protected, whatever, it doesn't matter, for 800 bucks. Yeah. Now, all of a sudden, you can make a property rent ready for $800 when the market thought, oh, it's going to cost me $20,000. Yeah. That just paid for the realtor. That's just one little piece no, of No, absolutely. Yeah. These creative strategies and just having people that know what they're doing. When it comes to your goals at this point with your finances, because it's really interesting to talk to people who've, and now you might not use the term financial independence, but that's a term we use all the time. And the goal for a lot of people is to build up that passive income. They know that they can live off of their passive income if they need to. They don't need to work anymore. You know, you're, I assume, in that place. So what is keeping you working? What goals do you have at this point? Like, what's your, what's your mindset in terms of money? I have to say, I think I'm a little bit different from a, a lot of mindsets and there's nothing wrong with any direction, but I am somebody who can't stop working. My wife jokes that she has to purposefully calendar date nights and child time for me to spend time with my children because any void, I'll just fill up with work. So I could not retire at 25 because of my personality, not because of finances. So for me, I don't want to retire. I don't care to be 80 and say I'm retired or even 50 and retired because I just want to keep doing things. So for me, I don't care about passive income. At 26 years old, I'll have plenty of passive income, but what I want to do now is throw every dollar I have that's extra into building, whether that's building businesses, companies, or a real estate portfolio. So if that means I am buying a deal that doesn't cash flow, but I know it has the equity potential, yeah. and I get into that deal, and it's a break even, but I'm still taking the tax benefits and the principal pay down. And I have a long run vision for that. I don't need the money to help sustain my, my, you know, food and, or, or my car expenses. That's what my job's for. Yeah. 
Yeah, so, it's a major sh- shift in mentality. I've noticed that for myself early on, and it's, I assume for yourself early on as well. It was build some passive income because, you know, uh, you need something to live off of. But at some point, you're like, all right, now I'm going to try new strategies. I'm going to buy properties that I think are going to appreciate a lot. Maybe I'll try a business that I think, you know, Matt's talked mm-hmm. about the idea of firepreneurship. And you can now start taking these risks, try out businesses that aren't necessarily ne- going to earn income. And if they do, great. But if they don't, you can still eat, right? And 100%. That, that's the power of like financial independence well, in our situation right now so real estate uh, company obviously we're established it, it makes money that pays for losses in other places we just opened a construction company that loses money a brand new construction company but it's okay because the other company supports that company yeah. and eventually it will stop losing money and that's mostly because of startup costs and things like that but I look forward to that. I don't care that there's a negative on the balance sheet there because I know what the potential is. Yeah, you can make these longer-term plays. Everything's long-term ones. in my mind. Long to everything to think in a, I will buy this property and I will sell it within seven years and then I'll go buy another property. I don't think in those terms. Mm -hmm. Everything is 30 plus years. So do you at this point plan on holding everything that you own 30 plus years? If I did not have the construction company, I would hold absolutely everything. But what I'm actually doing with the construction company to fill in sort of voids when clients don't need construction services is doing flips. So we'll use the construction company to do our own flips. And then that is, of course, selling the property. And that property could, in theory, make very little money. I could do a flip and make $10,000, be happy. It could make zero and it'd be fine because it's actually helping me build another company. Right. So in the grand scheme of things, the long-term goals of things, all of a sudden now you have a crew and you can blow through a flip very quickly. That makes you very valuable not only to your real estate clients, but to yourself in the long run. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm not 100% familiar with the 1031 exchange because we don't have it in Canada, but can mm-hmm. you apply that to flips or is that only principal residence? Not in flips and, and not principal residences. Uh, it has to be a rental property, right. generally for at least one to two years. Okay. And uh, so I think it's totally nice if you can apply that to flips. <laughs> it would be great because that is another downside of flips yes. is short term capital gains are, especially in California, you could say, oh, I made 50000 bucks on a flip. And then California, Fed, and, and the other phase-outs you're losing, you could be paying 55 to 60% yeah. on those gains in taxes. So you're walking away with 20K. Oh, that wasn't worth the effort. Yeah. Whereas if you held it for at least a year, now you're at short-term capital gains, you're paying maybe 20 to 25%. Huge incentive to hold long-term. Everything in America, it might be similar here, I'm not sure, is long-term. Yeah. You live in a property for two years. This is where that principal residence part comes from. If you live in a property for two years and you're married, you could exclude $500,000 of gains. So you could buy a property for 5% down. It could wow. go up in value 200000 bucks. You could take that money tax-free and go do it again and again every two years. Yeah. Play the game. I think something like that in Canada, but it's one year, and I don't know if it's 500000 Well, the or way it works in Canada, your principal residence, uh, there's no capital gains on your pr- principal residence. No limit. Yeah. That's but incredible. We had a limit. Well, and <laughs> so, like, there's certain restrictions there, so it may come down to, like, if you have an extra large lot size, they might then start doing it if it's farm. There's a bunch of, like, little caveats there, but that's essentially the basics. And that's where... House hacking is not only applied to living in your principal residence, but it's also heard it applied to people who buy a house, renovate it, 
and then live in it for about a year or so, and then they'll sell it, and then they'll pay no capital Take gains that on exclusion, 100%. it. 100%. And then they'll move into the next place and keep repeating that process until, in Canada, the CRA comes knocking, and they're like, this is a business. Yeah, <laughs> and that, that's the one fear that we kind of have here in Canada is up until recently, like, you didn't even have to put on your taxes when you sold your principal residence, so the government had no idea what was going on, essentially, where now you have to actually start recording that. So some people, myself included, are fearful that eventually, now that they're tracking it, at some point in time, that'll be used as a bullet point on someone's campaign like hey look if we even just tax it at 25 percent of the active income rate look at all the income we could earn sure and so that's what yeah. my real fear is that long term we're going to lose that but while we still have that opportunity people should be taking advantage of it what's your statute of limitations here like three years they could look at your tax returns and audit you seven, seven. up to seven years okay, we got three years in the united states right? so seven years that that that's a little harder but if that's not a rule yet keep milking it yeah mm-hmm. just keep milking it so the question sometimes comes up is what do you do uh, when the market value falls? Or at least what what do I think I would do in situations where, oh, the market's upside down. We've even got a flip right now where we're going to put it on the market uh, at the end of next week for $925,000. Unfortunately, the comps are about eight seventy five, So we might not get that. That right. property, you know, it, it could be something where I guess we're holding it and it's no problem. And that is the solution. Is the backup strategy to everything, no matter yeah, what. The, yeah. it, 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 no matter what happens in the market, the backup plan is hold it, rent it, and get through it. Yeah. As long as the projected rent can cover the payments. Yeah. That's ideal. Now look at this. So, so let's do a couple quick examples. We could probably rent this property for $4,200 a month. Our total payment into it would be about $3,500. $700 cash flow. Not great on almost a million dollar property, but I'm not losing money on yeah. it. Now, let's, let's say I was only able to make 3000 in rent and my payments were 3500 That's a loss of $500 a month. That sounds absolutely terrible to most people. It's like, oh my gosh, negative cash flow. Like that is the worst thing ever. It's 6000 bucks a year. Yeah. That's half of a real estate sale yeah, and that's to cover my loss. Including mortgage pay down, any appreciation, uh, tax, tax benefits, yeah. all of that. Exactly. Yeah. So negative cash flow, if it happens... As long as you got the place rented, the odds are it's not that big of a deal. It's why you see people who've owned property for 30 years and they've done it all wrong and they've still made an absolute killing. That's a great point. It's, it's really, in, in a lot of ways, at least historically, it's been really hard to lose money in real estate, which is kind of a scary thing because you start wondering, okay, like, can this go on forever? But at the end of the day, it's a real asset. It's something that people will always need. Yeah. yeah. Like I always think back to, you know, look back throughout human history, right? And like, you know, kings or fiefdoms, right? Like you essentially were kind of landlords. <laughs> you didn't have to worry about like landlord tenant tribunals or the RTA. but uh, Or rental licenses. Right? <laughs> but it was still essentially like, it's a business that's been around for a long time that seems to still be going strong. People are always going to need a place to live, right? Yeah, so. exactly. I'm not betting on real estate disappearing anytime soon, <laughs> put it that way. And so is there a specific neighborhood or city you're investing in, or do you invest across America? Just anything that's within 30 minutes of where I am. That's my rule of thumb. I want to know what the market conditions are and how the market is evolving. I won't know that if it's even six hours away or two hours away. Yeah. I'm not going there all the time. I'm not seeing the neighborhood or the if there's, say, there's a homeowner's association, if it's deteriorating, I should I want to know about it. I want to be the first to know about it because if a neighborhood is deteriorating, I'm out of there. I want quality. Right. I don't – that's why – that's another thing is quality over cash flow. Always quality first. If I see quality go down, I'm out of there. Interesting. And at least it'd be heading in the right direction, right? Like you want it going up, not down. So what sort of metrics are you using then to determine whether the quality is going up or down? 
That's a great question because there really is no indicate. Well, it is a lot of gut. If you look in an area like Los Angeles where a lot of development can drive value, that's one thing. An area like Ventura where that doesn't happen, where we invest, where the city says we want to stay small, we want to keep our small town character, we don't want gentrification. In an area like that, you really have to use gut. You drive the neighborhood. Wow. All of a sudden, this this street used to be great and now 60% of the houses don't mow their lawn. Yeah. How attractive is that to tenants? Now, tenants are now coming home every single day to a messy neighborhood, which means more turnover, which means more money out of your pocket, which means harder resale. Yeah. No, it's a lot more yeah, gut feeling and not not necessarily looking at statistics, but just like analyzing and, and, and viewing things. What I was going to ask was, for you, you mentioned your work ethic and the fact that you don't necessarily need to put work into having this work ethic. It comes naturally to you. Is that something that you think other people can find in themselves? Is that something where, you know, like in my, for myself, I found motivation when I started getting into real estate. I was like, this is something I'm passionate about. This is something where I'm working my ass off and it's not because I feel like I need to. It's because I want to. But I only found that fairly recently. And when I, when I was in school, I never felt that way. When I was working my day job, I never felt that way. Is there something that you think for people who aren't feeling motivated, they can find that in themselves, find that something that they're like, oh, I, want, I, want to, I want to pour every hour of my day into this? It's very difficult because it's different for every person. Something that motivated me incredibly when I got my first license, and this is just an example to show you how silly it is as far as where you can pull motivation from. The Taylor Swift Sparks Fly concert <laughs> drove me through the roof. I loved it. It was the first, it was actually the first concert I'd ever been to. I loved that so much. And that, I mean, that kept me like up high for like two years. It was amazing. 2016. Wait, what about that concert? I, I think I no missed idea. something. <laughs> I, that's what I mean. Is, is I it like no Tony idea. Robbins to you, but just Taylor Swift? <laughs> Basically, it must be. You found something yeah. in yourself. It, absolutely. So what motivates people is entirely different for everybody. Maybe that's seeing Gary Vee do the swipe up on Instagram. I don't know. Whatever, right? It's different for everybody. But it, it comes and goes. And that's the problem is you have to figure out what is going to be that overarching thing that keeps you motivated. For example, in 2016, it was a great year in real estate. But I wasn't in it. I wasn't feeling it. I hated it. I hated the deals I was doing. We just had a one-year-old child. It n- Nothing about it made me want to wake up and say, I'm going to go sell real estate. It was like, you know what? I'm going to stop trying to do $20, $25 million a year. I'm going to just limit myself and do $3 million bucks of real estate a year and just, just chill. I'll just play World of Warcraft again or whatever. Yeah. 2016 was a very bad year because I didn't have the motivation or a vision. There was nothing saying, why am I working? I had no reason to work. In 2017, I found that when I told myself, I'm doing it for my kids. I want Jack, my son, or Max, my other son, to be able to be 18 and say, if I desire to, I don't have to, if I desire to get into real estate, I can get into real estate and have is sort of this pre-established great reputation and I can build a company with my father yeah. and I can do business with my father. Like I, I just got chills thinking about the idea of working with my son that I hope will continue to motivate me just forever. I love that. We've talked a lot about the idea of like the peaks and valleys of being an entrepreneur. And it sounds like that was, you know, a valley in 2016 for you where you're like, I'm just not feeling it. But then you found your motivation again for me. And I, I think I've noticed it in Matt as well. The peaks come when you see the fruits of your labor. 
We're, for example, right now we're at ORAC 2018. We're shooting this podcast live. And the idea of all the planning that went into this, and there were valleys where yeah. like, and I wasn't a part of it as much as I should have been, but like people were but like, there were times where it was like, oh, like, is this going to turn out as well as we want? And then it turned, now it's turned out to be an amazing event. Like we're having an amazing time and it's at a peak again. And we've yeah. seen this over and over with the social lab and with like all these other, like our meetup groups and all these things where like you have these awesome times where you're like, this is what I'm doing it for. And then you have these times where you're like, ah, oh, I'm grinding through. And I think, you know, maybe there's some value in, in reducing the iterations or like, you know, making small, like taking on some smaller projects, finding those times where like you're at those peaks a little more often and keeps you uh, feeling motivated. But I think it's interesting to try and dive in and try and figure out how to keep people motivated because that's when you're most productive in your life. And yeah. so I'm curious, maybe switching gears slightly, but you talked about how you're always about the 30 year plan, right? So uh, we haven't really mentioned it yet, but uh, Kevin's got a uh, YouTube channel, Meet Kevin. So what's the 30 year plan there? What do you see with social media and doing that? The reason I'll start by answering it this way is the reason for social media for me is 2016, especially in 2015 and 14, both those, those three years were very difficult. I had a lot of stress and anxiety problems. I'd have chest pain. I'd have like the feeling of like ulcers and, and lumps in my throat. It's horrible. Tell people how old you were at this time because these aren't oh, things you should have had at no, that age. 23, 24, <laughs> 25, right? <laughs> Terrible. And uh, I, I don't know how many doctors I went to. And uh, really what it came to was too much stress I was never the person to think that psychological things could actually lead to physical pain because I thought, oh, well, it's just in my head. There's no way I would feel like a knife in my heart yeah. from a thought in my head. That's nonsense. Well, I learned it's not. Absolutely. <laughs> since I figured that out, and I, you know, I've solved it in other ways. But one of those is having a creative outlet. And that's what YouTube is for me is if when I post a video, there's just this, this relief of – I got, I put some thoughts out there. I put content out there for whatever reason. It is an incredible stress reducer. Wow. And not only that, the support and the community behind it is just like, you know, you feel great because you're helping people, which I don't know the, the term I'm helping people has always been like, it's either coming from people who genuinely want to help people or, or predatory. And, yeah. and it's like, you know, it's great to find the people who are actually trying to help people. And I always think I always use rent and maybe I'm, I don't mean to pick on rent to own, but like rent to own, like lease options tended to be, you know, there were times where people were doing it in a very predatory way. Like, ah, they won't be able to afford the down payment eventually anyway. So I'll be able to keep all of the extra income I've had during that time. And now, you know, we're seeing like there's rules implemented where people are doing rent to own fairly and they actually genuinely want to help people. And I've noticed for myself, because a lot of my investment properties are in my neighborhood. So I go for a walk and I see my tenant and this unit used to have like meth addicts in it and needles and stuff. And now she's gardening. She's like, oh, I love this. My dog's out there. And I'm like, I felt awesome. And I'm like, huh, like this is cool because I genuinely am happy about what I'm doing. And it's because I'm actually helping people and I'm profiting off of it, which is like a perfect Awesome balance. Very motivating. Yeah. So, okay. Another thing I wanted to ask was work-life balance for yourself because it sounds like a lot of work. So where's the life in that? Like, what, where are you finding that balance? That's very difficult. And that leads to a lot of days where you say to yourself, I said I quit. <laughs> you just get rid of everything. I'm going to do nothing ever again. <laughs> that that happens a lot to me. I feel that way a lot. And and those are just valleys. That's normal. I feel like if, if you don't have those days, you're not human. Yeah. Everybody's got that. So as far as balance, uh, probably something 
that uh, has helped me tremendously and only for about the last eight weeks from when I started it is having a regular routine in the morning where I won't check my email. I won't do anything, but actually just focus on me. So that'll be wake up at 4.30, 4.45, you know, somewhere around there, then drive to the gym slowly. I'm not going 80. I'm just driving slowly. I go to the gym. I, I don't even care to go to the gym or be buff or whatever. It's just like, I'm just going to go here. You know, today I'm only doing two sets instead of three. It doesn't matter. Nobody's judging me. Nobody cares. I'm judging Exactly. So, and then I'll go on a run. So today I'm going to do two miles. So one day I did seven and I shot out my joints, you know, whatever, but it's what I wanted to do. And then all of a sudden for the day, seven o'clock starts, seven 30, I'm good. Yeah. And the rest of the day is awesome. If I skip that morning routine, it's stressful. I love that. I, I mean, to, I think in Tim Ferriss's Tool of Titans, he talked about that was one thing he noticed amongst all everyone in the book was the, the morning routine. And, and Tony it's Robbins true. talks about this all the time. And if you got motivation out of Taylor Swift, you should go see Tony Robbins. <laughs> he'll probably get you going for the next uh, decade or so. <laughs> So I'm curious, we like to talk a lot or a fair bit on this podcast about frugality. So do you got any like frugality tips or life hacks that uh, you'd like to share with the audience? Have a spouse that's also frugal. That is very, very useful. Uh, We, so much so that probably my favorite one that is very not popular is uh, weddings. So what we did is we... We got married in 2013. We'd been together since 2008. We'd been living together since 2009. So we were already living together for four years. Getting married was partially tax advantageous too. (laughs) But getting married was really, it didn't change our life. So what we did is we didn't have a wedding. We got married and did sort of, we had our father-in-law do a little ceremony for us for free. I think we paid him like a euro. <laughs> it's just sort of like, we did pay you in Italy. And you're not allowed to do weddings in public in Italy unless you go through like the six month process and all these fees and all that. Wow. So we had our own little illegal wedding in, in <laughs> Italy at the Pantheon. It was beautiful. Cool. It was just like four of us together. And we made that same trip, our honeymoon. So then then we went on a cruise together. So our, our honeymoon trip was essentially our wedding. So our wedding cost was we say one euro because the rest yeah, was our honeymoon, yeah. which was also relatively, you know, okay. It was maybe, maybe we spent $5,000 on our wedding. Yeah. So to us, that was something where we kind of said no thanks to the social norms, took that extra, uh, people spent 25 to $100,000 on yeah. weddings very easily, took that money. Bought another property. <laughs> yeah. I yeah. love that tip. Especially it's like the Lambo like, money. Yeah. <laughs> I, I love that tip, though, just because a lot of young couples, when they get started out, right, there's a lot of pressure to have that big, fancy wedding. And that money could be used to such better purposes. And I think we just need to make it more socially acceptable to care about your personal finances more than one night. Especially early on. Yeah. Like we talk about, you know, you running your money through a calculator and it's like, oh, if I got 8%, you know, on my money over the next however many years, you'd be a millionaire. And like, that's great. But like, if you took that and applied it to real estate, you could get, you can get there a whole lot quicker maybe. So early on, you know, maybe buying a house instead of a wedding is kind of a pretty interesting and concept. Why not maybe five or 10 year anniversary if you then want to have that big blowout once you're financially established, then go do that and have that crazy party if you want to once you can afford it. Exactly. Or have the same experience for less money. Have the wedding, but don't blow a bunch of money on it. Get mm-hmm. a bunch of people together. Have a party. Have a barbecue. 
<laughs> it doesn't need to be $100,000, right? But another best wedding would be if you took everybody and rented out a restaurant or whatever for the night, and that was your only fee, no coordination fees, nothing. And everybody who came, you gave them a $200 gift card. So rather than them paying you, you paid them to come to your <laughs> wedding. It would be the cheapest wedding anyway. Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. That's funny. I like that. And everybody would say it was the best wedding of their life. <laughs> I got paid to go yeah. to this wedding. So one question we like to commonly ask our guests is, what are you grateful for? Oh, wow. Honestly, the, the opportunities that we have in, in America, I'm sure they're relatively similar in Canada, but the opportunities we have are unbelievable. The fact that we can control a house for 3% down, the fact that we we can, with very little prior education, get a real estate license and help people and create a business. And if you fail, don't worry. It's okay. Try again, try again, try again. Yeah, Everything is set up for you. You want to trademark something? Here, do it yourself. You can do it all yourself. You want to renovate the house yourself? You can. You go to a hardware store and you ask them how to do it and they'll show you how to do it. I mean, it's really cool. It's amazing. It, it's cool because I've never thought about this before, but in like North America, you have the ability to fail so much better than you do in so many other countries, right? You can fail and it doesn't matter. Like you can get right back up and do it again. Like your worst case scenario here is a, is a bankruptcy. And like mm-hmm. there's like... It's not even that bad of a scenario, really. Like, you can yeah. bounce back from that. Seven years of savings and you're right back. Yeah. I mean, it sucks. Lie, but yeah. 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 <laughs> but, like, to have all your debt written off is not the worst thing. <laughs> like, Absolutely, yeah. There are some attorneys that strategize their life around that. I don't recommend this, but I hear this. They will, every seven years, file BK. Oh, God. I think it's a terrible idea. Wow. Where, yeah, they're, you know they're putting their money somewhere else before yeah. they do They uh, must be, the Cayman Islands or something. <laughs> so, are there any, because we're talking a lot about frugality and stuff, but do you have any guilty pleasures? maybe something you spend money on that a lot of other people would be like, what the hell are you spending money on that for? Like I have a $400 blender and a lot of people think that's crazy, but (laughs) yeah. uh, The problem with me is I, the only thing I spend money on are business related things. So maybe my guilty pleasure might be buying an expensive set of tools so that it's just my justification as well. If a client ever needed me to change an outlet right there, which has happened. I can do it for the, during a listing presentation. Well, this switch is broken. I got I got beautiful tools. Let me bring them out, and I can fix it for them right there. Yeah, you win the listing first of all, so it pays <laughs> for itself. But I got to use some real ergonomic tools. I love tools, and you feel good. That's oh, awesome. Oh yeah. So another question we like to ask is, what would the hero, if your life was a movie, what would the hero do right now? Uh, so if my life was a movie, so if I was the hero, what would I do as a hero right now? Yeah. Oh, wow. I think the biggest hero move, I mean, this sounds so like, you know, something that a lot of people might say, but it's it's so painful to me is uh, any kind of child suffering is absolutely horrible to me. I, I see, it, it pains me to think about it. I just see my two-year-old and when he sleeps in his crib, I, I think, I, I watch him, I think to myself, what opportunities this child has that maybe only 7% of the world has? To be born in a first world country is about... 13, 7 to 13%. I can't remember what it is. Low, between, uh, yeah. It's low. It's yeah. over, let's say around 7%. To be born in a first world country and to have the opportunities that we have access to. Yeah. That's sad. Why is it that 40% of the world lives on less than a dollar a day? You know how many children are suffering if the family is making a buck a day or yeah. three bucks a day for a family? Of three? That's terrible. That'd be the hero move. Yeah. I love that. That's perfect. So is there a frugality tip or a life hack that you might be able to share with the audience? Buy. Now, that's it. Just get in, buy a house, start. 
That doesn't sound like it's a frugality tip, but it is. Because here's the thing. When you start deciding, I'm going to buy as soon as possible, what do you do to get ready to buy? (sighs) Well, I got to clean up my credit. I got to pay off my debt. That means I'm going to have to start saving. There's your forced frugality right there. I got to pay that car off so I can qualify. I got to pay those student loans off. There's your frugality. It's forced. Yeah. Now it's not, I'm just saving because I know it's going to be good for me in the future. You actually have a goal. Yeah. Yeah. It's buying investments instead of buying, it's instead of, it's buying assets instead of liabilities. Is what it is. Yeah. That's a great tip. All right. Well, thank you so much, Kevin, for yeah, joining us on the fun. podcast. Thank you this for was fantastic. Me. And what's yeah. the best way for people to get in touch with you? Instagram emails get saturated. I absolutely hate phone calls. Text messages are generally not a good idea, but Instagram, I almost keep that cleared out. I'll, I'll have text messages from two weeks ago, but yeah. Instagram, I'm up on it. So. Perfect. And it's at Real Meet Kevin, right? That's it. Okay. Perfect. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you again for being on the show. That was a great episode. And I love learning more about Kevin and his approach to investing and even his perspective on active versus passive income. As well, I love his commitment to integrity and his focus on ensuring that his son step into a legacy or a name that they can be proud of. Kevin is an analytical and thoughtful guy. You can tell that he analyzes the impact of his actions and makes decisions that he truly think will benefit those that he does business with. 100% agree. And while you guys are waiting for the next episode of this podcast, jump over to Facebook and join the London on Fire community and follow us on Instagram at On Fire Podcast. And make sure to tune in for the next On Fire Podcast to meet more people, hear their stories, and learn from their mistakes. Thanks for listening. This is Matt. And Kellen, signing off. And until next episode, remember being normal buying stuff doesn't make you happy and always remember what johnny isaacson said in the real estate business you learn more about community issues you learn more about life and you learn more about the impact of government probably more than any other profession that i know of